Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. I want to paint a quick picture here. Think of your brain as a pickle in a pickle jar floating around in liquid. Now, imagine shaking that pickle jar. That's one way today's guest would explain what we call a concussion. As many as three million people get concussions every year here in the U.S. And yes, it happens to athletes and other people who get hit in the head, but it can also happen after car accidents or even simple falls. And that's one of several popular misconceptions about concussions we'll be exploring today. Later in the show, we'll hear from Dr. Balan Omai. He's a chief of neurotrauma and neurosurgery at the Yale School of Medicine. He studies traumatic brain injuries, including concussions. And we'll also hear from Eliana Bloomfield, whose own concussion experience inspired her to start a nonprofit to help support concussion patients during their own healing journeys. But first, we have Dr. Vanessa Cornwall Chu. She's a physical therapist who specializes in concussion treatment and actually was Eliana's own doctor during her own healing journey. Dr. Chu, welcome to where we live this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Chu, I want to start with the basics. Can you tell us what exactly is a concussion? Sure. A concussion can be an impact to the head. It is Anything that can range from um, inflammation to the brain tissue, and uh, it can involve many different symptoms. And we sort of talked about earlier that we, I think a lot of us have seen on on TV shows how it's being represented. You know, people are tested for concussions and they'll be asked questions like, you know, what day it is, who the president is, and the ideas if they can answer those questions in person um, to the person that's uh, examining them. Uh, they think they're fine. They don't have a concussion. But in your line of work, Dr. Chu, you found that symptoms can be much more subtle than that. So can you tell us, you know, what can those symptoms look like and what are the red flags to look out for? Sure, sure. A concussion can be any symptoms that range from headaches. So it can feel like pressure in the head. Some people afterward can have uh, nausea, even vomiting. Some people have balance problems, so this can be a double vision, dizziness, feeling just off kilter. Uh, symptoms can also be uh, sensitivity to sensitivity to light, so that can be called photophobia, uh, and just feeling just off, you know, a little foggy, hazy, not feeling right, and it, it can range also even into mood changes. I've had patients feel just completely off, just not feeling like themselves. And some of the red flags for sure that I would tell anyone you should definitely go seek medical attention would be if there was a loss of consciousness. So um, after the impact to the head or uh, in a 
to be an impact directly to the head. Um, as you mentioned, there can be a motor vehicle accident. So if there was a whiplash where the head uh, received a high velocity and it shook, again, that pickle in a pickle jar, that can uh, result in a concussion. So going back to the red flags, it can be any uh, fainting, passing out, uh, vomiting is pretty severe. So I would say go seek medical attention, a severe headache that is really, really uh, debilitating, uh, changes of vision, uh, that I would definitely say you need to go see a doctor. And with what you just said, there's such a range of of uh, symptoms. And can you talk more about that feeling that something is off kilter? You, know, you mentioned fogginess, something is wrong. How does that typically present? Yes, oh, that is a really good question. I, I think that can present in so many different ways, and it's very different for people. Uh, some people just feel like they're in comfortable. They feel uh, a little off. They don't feel like themselves, and things can just feel almost like a dream. You know, I've had patients describe it like this just feels like a surreal experience. Feel a, a part of the world. They feel almost like a they're looking down upon themselves. So it can be almost like this out of body experience, or they just kind of have this zombie like state that they're in after um, the injury of feeling like I am, I'm never well rested. I, I, I try to sleep and I wake up and I just feel completely, uh, you know, like a zombie. And yeah, and I think with with what you're just describing, it's I can imagine it being really difficult to realize that something is happening. So emphasizing the importance of of seeing a doctor after having any of these incidences, and with these sim with these symptoms, do they typically appear right away, or can they appear a while after the injury? That is a great question. So symptoms can come on immediately. It can come on the next day. But sometimes these manifest a few days, it can come on a week afterward. And I've even had patients inform me that it that they have had symptoms come on a month afterward. And I want to share, uh, we have one mm -hmm. recent high profile example of a less immediately obvious concussion that comes from State Representative Miriam Khan, who was attacked outside of an eat service in July. She publicly criticized the police's failure to provide medical attention. Let's take a quick listen. There was no ambulance. There was no, no one there to provide me medical attention. I asked for them to call for medical attention, um, which then they did. When the medics came, I, they just, they, I remember feeling that I had to convince them that I was injured. My neck hurts. I'm like, I feel it. Something is wrong. And Colin also says she was knocked to the ground during the incident, but once the medics ruled out a spine injury, they told her it was just muscle pain and basically gave her an ice pack. But later, she was diagnosed with a concussion. So, Dr. Chu, with what we just heard, how often are concussions misdiagnosed at first? You know, I don't know the exact statistic of how many are misdiagnosed but just listening to the clip you know i would say there's so much uh the, 
the dismissive behavior comes from they're looking at the immediate of, you know, do like, uh, like you mentioned that is there a spine injury? Uh, is there is someone bleeding out? And so this is the invisible injury. And it is so frustrating for so many people that have uh, suffered from a concussion, uh, traumatic brain injury, or suffering from post concussion syndrome, which is our term for uh, concussion symptoms that are lingering, you know, two to four weeks after the concussion. Um, so it it really is the invisible injury that is very, very challenging to treat, but you do have to, uh, you know, seek further medical attention. And so many people don't know to do that if, if they're in that moment, especially if they're going through the immediate trauma of an assault and they just uh, are responding to whoever is in front of them. And so, you know, then loved ones may say, hey, you know, it, it, it's been a few days, a few weeks, you're not doing too well, you know, maybe you should go see somebody for how you're feeling. And once they're able to to diagnose a concussion, what does the healing process look like? The healing process can be so complex, and it looks so different on so many people. So many people have, you know, I would say maybe a straightforward recovery where uh, they start to feel better, you know, seven to, eight, to 10 days after the concussion, and they feel like themselves. And sometimes it can take weeks for someone to feel better, even months. But the the journey and the healing process can be very up and down. And it also can depend on how quickly somebody is going back into an environment that might be a little too much, or uh, are they going into something stressful? Do they have to go back to school? Do they go back to work? Do they have children? And so that can feel very up and down, like any kind of healing process. If I sprained my ankle and I tried to go, uh, you know, walking around the mall and I'm thinking, oh, this really really hurts. Maybe that was too much that day. And now I need to go rest and ice and elevate my ankle. It's the same with the concussion. Uh, and I'd say with the healing process, the my biggest piece of advice is making sure you have a support system. The support system can be not just medical. Family and friends are crucial, absolutely crucial. And having somebody um, a trained psychologist, a counselor to help somebody with it because it is very, very emotional uh, to go through this healing process. And I wonder if it's a lot more complicated than we we typically learn. And it sounds like there's not really a typical way of recovery. So has methods of treatment for concussion patients changed over time? You know, are there different priorities that you should think about when you find yourself in this situation? Absolutely. I'm going to quote Dr. Cindy Chang from uh, UCSF Children's. She said, Chil uh, the concussions are like snowflakes and there's no one concussion or healing journey that is alike. And the methods have changed so much. I feel like, um, back, back in the day before I became uh, a physical therapist, there was definitely this cocoon type of uh, thought, a, a treatment plan of, oh, you've had a concussion. You need to be in a dark room, no sound, don't move, like just bed rest. And that actually has shown uh, to be detrimental to a concussion sufferer. 
So now we look more immediately after a concussion of active rest, where we want to eliminate really stimulating uh, different stimuli in the environment. So that can be anything from your smartphone to going to a big uh, big store where they have big fluorescent lights, loud environments. I would not recommend somebody going to a, a huge live concert after they have suffered from a concussion. And, and then going into more of a progression to their regular activities. So when I've treated uh, patients that are in school, the first step is going to be return to learn, which is going to be hoping to get them back into their educational environment. And if it is somebody who is in the workforce, uh, a return to work. And then from there, if they are involved in a sport or, uh, you know, they like to go to the gym recreationally, then we look at those goals. So as you're having your patients do this sort of very gradual return to to normalcy and and uh, you know they're doing their thing what sort of evaluations might you do to test how people are functioning and how their recovery like is there a way to measure that yes that is a wonderful question for me as a physical therapist Usually I'm seeing patients that have been evaluated by a medical doctor. My doctorate is in physical therapy. And so usually I'm seeing patients that have had uh, symptoms that are lingering. And so I'm treating post-concussion syndrome. Usually in the um, medical office, they're doing tests uh, around the cranial nerve. So looking at vision, Um, auditory. And I do some of that as well in my evaluation. So part of my evaluation is looking at eyes and the eye movement. How well can they track my pen, for example? If I have two targets, can they look back and forth at those targets? Does that cause any symptoms? I'm also doing a cervical spine exam. So I'm looking at the neck because so many times the neck can be involved and you can get cogenic headaches from the muscles being tightened or strained from the impact. I'm also looking at balance. So can they stand on one leg? How do they feel? Um, And also a posture exam. If they are in pretty bad posture and slouching all day long, that's not going to be good for concussion recovery too. So all of that is part of my evaluation. And I mean, there's just so much there, right? I think the, the body is so interconnected. So if you hit your head, it doesn't necessarily mean that only your head is is injured and we'll definitely be uh, going deeper into that in a little bit. But I also want to talk about, you know, we, we said in the introduction that we often associate concussions with athletes and sports activities. But can you talk about what are some other everyday activities that can also result in a concussion? Right. As you mentioned, a motor vehicle accident, very common. I'd say that is actually supersedes some of my athletes. Recently, I've been seeing, unfortunately, more motor vehicle accidents and patients suffering from post-concussion syndrome from um, a motor vehicle accident. But it can be anything like a a workplace accident. I've had you know construction worker have something fall um, onto his head, 
Uh, it could be a fall at home. So, you know, this, this hits everyone, no pun intended there, but that it, it can affect so many people, young or old. I have elderly patients who have fallen and especially if they haven't hit their head against something that that can be a direct oh you've hit your head on the door frame as you fell you know let's check you for a concussion it it could just be again uh that counter coop involvement of their uh pickle got rattled in that jar as they fell well, first of all, I never thought I was going to say pickle so many times on this show, but here we are setting a different record here. And Dr. Chi, you mentioned children earlier, too. Is there an extra challenge to diagnosing a younger child because they may or may not be able to really communicate what they're feeling? Absolutely. Uh, children can be definitely a challenge. And again, we're looking at that kind of dismissive culture of they're just being moody or they're going through a a phase or, oh, they're exaggerating their symptoms. So, so much of it can be dismissed with children. And I think it's really important to look at how they're doing, how they're feeling, and also listening to the parents and validating what the parents are saying and listening to their gut reaction. If you know something is off with your child, you're right. And that needs to be heard. And I want to read a quick statement from Megan Scallon, who's the CEO of Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence, who told us that traumatic brain injury is a common occurrence for survivors, some of who may repeatedly be struck in the head, shaken or choked by their abuser, resulting in both short and long term cognitive impairments. She also says that these injuries can be particularly dangerous for survivors and their ability to assess danger and make or remember a safety plan. Uh, Dr. Chu, can you speak to that? Absolutely. When I was going through my list of uh, different mechanisms of injury, I did leave that out. So I apologize that, yes, unfortunately, assault can be another one. Um, And we're going back to that idea of this is an invisible injury. And so sometimes if there isn't a mark on a person, it's just thought of you're looking at a victim. Oh, okay. Well, you know, they just went through a lot, but you know, you don't see anything. uh, So at least physically speaking, they're okay. Um, And so absolutely that is something that needs to be addressed so that, there are victims of assault that do suffer from a concussion after the assault. And a note for our listeners that Connecticut's Domestic Violence Resource and Information Line is 888-774-2900 or check out www.ctsafeconnect.org. And we'll also have links to that on our website. And uh, Dr. Chu, just a quick moment, wanted to ask if there's anything else you would like our listeners to know about your work. I would say my my biggest take home is If you have ever had any of these symptoms after um, an impact, even if the accident, the injury was from, you know, one year ago, you know, listen to your body, listen to yourself. And this is something that you should try to address with the doctor. And sometimes people have to seek a second opinion and go see somebody else and ask the doctor about seeing a vestibular physical therapist. And the vestibular physical therapists are trained in this. 
And same piece of advice for family, friends, loved ones is if you have seen somebody that uh, that you love and they've gone through something like this and they're still having lingering symptoms, encourage them to uh, seek more medical attention and hopefully go see a vestibular physical therapist. You've been listening to Dr. Vanessa Cornwell Chu. She's a physical therapist who specializes in concussion treatment. Thank you so much, Dr. Chu, for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And coming up next, we'll hear from Dr. Blonde Omai. He's the chief of neurotrauma and neurosurgery at the Yale School of Medicine. Have you or a loved one ever had a concussion? What was your experience like? Let us know. Leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We just heard about the basics of concussions, how they work, and what the recovery process can look like. But a lot of what we know about concussions and other traumatic brain injuries, we've actually learned very recently. And here with us to talk about these recent research developments is Dr. Blon Omai. He's the head of neurotrauma and neurosurgery at the Yale School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dr. Omai. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Catherine. So, Dr. Omai, you know, a lot of the times when someone is diagnosed with concussion, it's presented as an alternative to a traumatic brain injury or a TBI. And historically, we have differentiated between concussions and TBIs. But are these two things really different? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, they are not. They are not different. Um, essentially, uh, traumatic brain injury uh, defines uh, a physical force applied to the head, which which will eventually impact the brain as well. Concussion, and this is a spectrum, and concussion is the is considered to be the the, the kind of the the least impactful version of it uh, when we compare it to mild TBI, which is sometimes used as an alternative uh, word for concussion to moderate. Uh, TBI or severe TBI. So essentially, we're looking at a spectrum uh, of a very complex disease and concussion and mild traumatic injury are on one end and severe traumatic brain injury is on the other end. So we've also been talking about how 
complicated this can be and how difficult it can be to realize that you have a concussion. Uh, do you have any uh, stats or like a percentage of patients who will experience permanent side effects after a concussion? So, uh, per, so concussion, uh, again, considering that this, this is kind of on the mild end of things, um, creates a little bit of a diagnostic challenge, I should say. Again, I'll bring an example from more severe types of traumatic injury where we use imaging modalities to actually clearly diagnose what the problem is. As an example, the patient may have like an epidural hematoma, which will clearly reveal itself on imaging. But in terms of concussion diagnosis, it's a little bit, um, it's, it's not as clear and as objective, I should say. And uh, patients may present with one symptom, a multitude of symptoms, and these may linger on for longer periods, and sometimes with no evidence of brain imaging abnormalities. So in a way, it's hard to gauge how long the symptoms last and how, um, how affected a person is, in a way. There are mechanisms to measure this with, um, with questionnaires and with certain, um, certain tests other than imaging that kind of help uh, follow this, but it's, it's not as easy as in the severe end of the spectrum. And we also talked about earlier that you know, this can happen to anyone in any incident, really. Uh, are there any demographics that are more likely than others to suffer permanent damage from post-concussive syndrome? Yeah, so um, in general, uh, the, 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 the younger population, like teenagers and young adults, are more susceptible to uh, injury from um, like high-risk uh, high activities or, or contact sports. Um, um, and males are more likely to be uh, concussed. Uh, and then there's the other end of the spectrum where the elderly population, and this is kind of like uh, from, a, from a demographic perspective, elderly traumatic brain injury is definitely a, a rising phenomenon in terms of the numbers of the patients that we see. Um, so these two groups create the, uh, the the big kind of patient groups that present with traumatic brain injury in general and as well as concussion. Um, and with what you just said too, and um, throughout this conversation, we also used to think of traumatic brain injuries as permanent, but concussions as more acute. But as uh, Dr. Vanessa Cornwell-Chu explained earlier, recovery can take a very long time and very much dependent on the person. But can a history of concussions make future concussions more likely or harder to recover from? Definitely. So um, repetitiveness of concussions can actually, um, has a, has a has a significant additive effect and in the long run each concussion makes the next concussion more likely to hurt the patient that's the right word and in the long run patients who have repetitive concussions can eventually develop uh, more like chronic degenerative diseases of the brain chronic traumatic encephalopathy um, which have a similar um, pattern of dementia in the long run. So it is extremely important for patients who undergo concussion or mild traumatic injury to make sure that they use all the preventive measures 
to to stop another episode of uh, brain injury from happening. And I know there's no typical situation, really, especially with what we've been talking about、um, just now, but. With what you just said earlier, too, with with the different the various cases that you that you get from your patients, you know, are there are there more are there different kind of incidences that you hear more than others, like falling down versus motor vehicle accidents versus sports? Yeah,、um, I mean, sports, especially like contact sports, motor vehicle accidents, they have always been the、uh, the the standard group that caused concussions. But as the population is aging. And as the elderly population is staying more active and、uh, not just staying home, and but they're like living life and they're walking, they're taking hikes and they're maybe even cycling.、Um, I think that's the reason why the elderly population is getting more and more exposed to、uh, TBI and and concussion, and we we see them more and more、uh, in our emergency departments. Uh, sometimes presenting with mild TBI concussions, sometimes presenting with more severe versions of traumatic brain injury. So that is definitely something is、um, happening more and more. And then in the future, I'm sure that you know the the, the elderly traumatic brain injury is definitely become、um, a, a bigger、uh, a bigger problem for、uh, for patients and、uh, healthcare. So. I think a lot of this definitely hinges on whether or not a patient goes to a doctor immediately after an incident. So, I want to ask: Does imaging need to happen right away in order to catch a concussion or to make a diagnosis? So、uh, that's a tough question to answer,、uh, mm-hmm. just because,、uh, as I alluded to, like the the diagnosis of concussion is not like an easy diagnosis. Right. But for any patient who have undergone brain injury. A traumatic brain injury. If they have symptoms, neurological symptoms, that patient needs to be evaluated by a physician. And the physician, depending on the findings of the、uh, neurological examination as well as the symptomatology, will decide on whether imaging is needed.、Uh, in severe cases, it's a clear-cut issue, but usually this decision will need to be done、uh, in an emergency setting or in a, at least in a, in a doctor's office setting. Uh, but any neurological symptoms、uh, or signs needs to be evaluated. And I know you mentioned earlier、uh, the importance of people to be more careful. So, how can someone with or without a history of concussions prevent、uh, getting one in the future? I'm, I'm not gonna lie; I'm kind of picturing myself really holding onto those railings walking downstairs. But are there things that people can really look out for in order to prevent、um, potential future concussions? Yes. So、um, when I talk to my patients about like preventive further injuries, first of all, like how did the original injury happen? I think it's very important to kind of like make sure that a critical analysis is done on like how that injury happened, because it is very likely that the the second injury will also use the same mechanism in a way. So they and the physician and the family. Needs to understand and kind of like almost dissect the 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 incident of the TBI and understand why it happened and how this can be prevented. As an example,、uh, if they were riding a bicycle and they were not wearing a helmet, and then just a minor fall turned out to be like a a big concussion phenomenon,、uh, it's clear that they should start wearing a helmet in a way.、Um, it's it may be as basic as that, but in the elderly population. 
um, it's very hard to tell someone that they should, you know, uh, not go and take a walk outside. And it's because this is their life. And I think nobody should be asked to not enjoy life and do the reasonable things that needs to be done to enjoy life. So it's always a balance. But I think being cognizant of like, you know, how the original injury happened and uh, what could have been done to prevent it is very important. And uh, if they had like a mechanical fall while they were walking on a normal street, for example, uh, maybe it's uh, advisable to uh, walk with, with with someone else who can help them, uh, or um, or or um, or just like some measures that will help them kind of like you know uh, stay focused in a way. So it's kind of like an individual based recommendation in a way, but I think it all comes down to thinking about the injury and how it can be prevented. Like, I think prevention is essentially the key component in, uh, in TBI management, if that's the right word, because uh, that is that is the, the best tool uh, to, to help patients. And we've also mentioned misconceptions. So Dr. Om, I wanna ask, you know, what else would you like listeners to know? Are there any other misconceptions that you would like to clarify? Um, I think I think it's important to uh, to understand the fact that there is some uh, there is some misunderstanding around the terminology of traumatic brain injury and concussion. I think it's important to understand that they are actually one single thing with a with a spectrum, and uh, I think brain is our you know the most fragile organ and. Uh, I think it's it, it's very important to understand that uh, that the this is a this concept uh, uh, of a trauma to the brain um, uh, can be very unique and individualized in the way it kind of presents itself in terms of symptoms and signs and how it affects the patient in the long run. It's also dependent again from an individualistic perspective, like what the patient's job is, how they live their life, and everything. So. Uh, each one of them needs to be individually assessed and, and understood. But um, having a concussion or not having a concussion uh, is not the key here. I think the key here is like you know, having a traumatic injury to the brain uh, and how to prevent it from, from happening again. Well, thank you so much for that. And I just want to take a quick moment to share a comment from a listener on Twitter who says they definitely stay up to date with Brain Injury Alliance of Connecticut. They have a great newsletter. Well, thank you so much for sharing that info. And so for those who are interested, go ahead and sign up. You've also been listening to Dr. Balan Omai. He's a chief of neurotrauma at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Omai, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. And next, we're going to hear from Eliana Bloomfield, whose firsthand experience with concussions um, has inspired her to start a nonprofit dedicated to supporting concussion patients. And if you or someone you know had a concussion, you can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We just heard about the standard practices for concussion diagnosis and treatment and how they've evolved over the years. Next, we're going to hear from someone who has experienced this firsthand. Eliana Bloomfield was a patient of Dr. Vanessa Cornwall-Chu's and has since founded a nonprofit called Concussion Box, which provides resources and support for people experiencing concussions. Eliana, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And I want to start the conversation by you know, asking you to share us about your experience with concussions. Sure. So it was about eight years ago now. It was my freshman year of high school and I was a big soccer player. So I had been preparing for soccer tryouts for a long time. And and it was the second day, I believe, of freshman year high school soccer tryouts. And there's a stretch that you do in warmups. You lean down, touch your toes, kick your leg back. And the girl in front of me and I were a little too close together and her cleat collided with my temple. And I remember kneeling down on the ground and feeling a lot of pain, but it was tryouts and I was very determined, so I kept playing. And within about 15 minutes, it became very clear that something was off. Like like Dr. Cornwell Chu uh, described earlier, just that sense of something's wrong, I don't really know what it is. Um, And I went home and then it was the next day that things really started to unfold. I couldn't read. I remember looking at a page and seeing words, but not really comprehending anything. Um, And that feeling of something being off just really set in. And, you know, I went to I went to my pediatrician and they told me probably a week. And then it was it was about a year of recovery. So. Um, It was a long recovery. It definitely taught me to be very, very patient. And I'm I'm very grateful for the support systems I had, like Dr. Cornwell Chu, who helped me through that. Right. And um, just you describing that, it sounds an absolutely horrifying experience. And and especially, you know, you've been listening to the conversation uh, this morning, too. Can you talk about some of the specific things you did during your treatment and were you able to sort of figure it out pretty quickly or was it sort of a, a long experience for you? Sure thing, yeah. So, you know, I think very quickly it was apparent that it was a concussion, but I think it took me a long time to figure out what worked for me in, in terms of my own healing process. I spent a lot of time on the couch with my eyes closed I listened to audiobooks since that was one of the few things that I could do. Um, I was very determined to stay in school as much as I possibly could. So I remember my dad reading my biology textbook out loud to me because I couldn't look at it. And I, I would speak out loud a little bit each day, parts of an English essay, and my mom would type it for me. Um, but to be honest, it's it's always a little funky and telling my concussion story in a lot of detail because a lot of my memories from that time are pretty fuzzy. Uh, I know I spent a lot of time lying down. Um, I know there were audiobooks and there was music. And when I went to PT, we did a lot of heart rate monitor activities, balance activities. 
but there is there is a lot of fuzziness that goes along with telling the concussion story um, for myself, and I've heard that from others. And I think that's that's just part of telling a concussion story that there are gaps. Right, and then of course I think that res- that would resonate with a lot of people, and certainly it follows with what we've been talking about this hour. And of course, can't talk about this without asking, you know, what was it that inspired you to start Concussion Box? Sure. So Concussion Box is a nonprofit organization uh, that supports people who are affected by concussions. So we really focus on the isolation aspect of concussions. And that's something that I felt during my own recovery. Um, You know, I was a 14 year old girl who all of a sudden couldn't have conversations, couldn't watch TV, couldn't go on a run with friends. All these typical avenues for connection were just cut off or made very difficult. And I remember thinking to myself, there's, there's got to be another way. You know, maybe it's isolating, but does it have to be this isolating? And those ideas of how could we creatively find a loophole to add some more community to this experience, that festered for a long time. And then one day I said, okay, enough of just, you know, not being able to sleep at night and writing down ideas on a notepad next to my bed. It's, it's time to just do something. And the con- a concussion box, it's not just a nonprofit. It's also a literal box, right? What's in it? It is indeed. Yeah, great question. I've, I've got one here next to me that I'm looking at. Uh, so in the concussion box, there's a QR code that leads you to our audio library of concussion stories. We have a personal note a bar of chocolate, which is my personal favorite, Um, some herbal teas, a simple recovery guidebook, a handmade eye mask, and some earplugs. So it's a nice mixture of things that are both comforting and that are also useful resources. And a lot of what the box does is that it leads people to our audio library, which is where a lot of those connections happen. And uh, speaking of the audio library, we have a clip uh, that was submitted to the Concussion Box audio library by Alyssa, who has had multiple concussions and is living with post-concussive syndrome and PTSD. Let's take a quick listen here. And I was at that point bewildered, disturbed, and so confused about what the heck was going on. I remember looking out the window at a bunny that was eating grass in my backyard. Like I felt nothing but fear and sadness and despair about the future. And I thought this is not normal. Like I would normally love watching that bunny eat the grass. Uh, Something is seriously wrong and like chemically wrong with my brain. It was a spiral that was really, really dark. And I suppose the next chapter that's super important to hear about is that I was able to kind of rebuild my life by thinking about brain injury as something I may never recover from, but I could grow from the experience. I wasn't the same person anymore, and that's okay. And so with Alyssa's story, among many, and with what you just shared too, Eliana, why is it important for people to have access to stories like the one we just heard? You know, is it about building community with people who would understand each other? You know, what 
Why is it important to have this library available for people? Totally. I mean, that's a great question. It really gets to the heart of Concussion Box. There's so many reasons. The first is just to normalize it. You know, I think because of this isolating nature of concussions, there's so many people going through these experiences, like looking at a bunny and and feeling strange feelings. Um, and they think, oh gosh, am I going crazy? I, I can remember the moment when I realized I couldn't read and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm a crazy person. And if you're able to hear that someone else is going through this and they're coming out on the other end, that helps normalize it, makes you feel like you're not going so crazy. Um, and the other aspect is, is also for the storytellers. You know, there's a lot of healing that can come from sharing your own story. It can be very empowering, especially to know that your story is helping others who are suffering right now. So the benefits really go both ways between the storyteller and the listener. And with the concussion box and the audio library and all the resources that's available to people, uh, what has the responses been like from from uh, from people that you've engaged with who have gotten a box and have gotten a chance to listen to some of those stories? Yeah, great question. Um, it, it, it's been overwhelmingly positive response. Not not to toot our own horns too much, but um, we found that this has been a really a really comforting resource for people and um, that it's usable for the concussion patient you know right there's so many things that are restricted screen time conversations exercise but that audio in your own time in your own place at your own volume is a usable resource um and that there's just a lot of comfort that comes hand in hand with knowing that you have a community of people behind you who are able to meet you where you're at and provide support there. And we've got about a minute or so left here, but I want to ask to, you know, with this experience and, and also with your extra experience of creating a nonprofit, you know, what would you like our listeners to know? Or, or are there surprises that you yourself have found yourself thinking, oh, I did not expect that? Hmm. Well, I think one thing I'd say, and just the, to, to anyone out there with an idea that's been festering in their mind for a while, run with it, see where it goes. Because um, there's a reason that we have ideas. You know, when we go through these real life experiences, that's, that's where ideas come from. And um, the the other thing that i that i want to say is that to anyone out there with a concussion you get to redefine what being with people and being with community looks like you know a lot of the the ways that we normally interact with community aren't possible when you have a concussion but you can ask the people around you to just sit with you you can listen to a story and turn that into a communal communal activity. So I just want to leave with the message of don't be afraid to get creative when it comes to, to providing that communal support. You've been listening to Eliana Bloomfield, who is sharing her own experience with concussion and has since found a nonprofit called Concussion Box. Thank you so much, Eliana, for sharing your experience with us today. Thank you for having me.
I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show was produced by Kate Perkins and Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.